I read Rhonda Byrne's new book, The Greatest Secret, having heard her talk with Rupert Spira, the teacher of Advaita Vedanta or non-dualism, whom I greatly admire. And I wondered what they could possibly find in common, her law of attraction against his advocacy of awareness. Now, The, the Secret, uh, Rhonda Byrne's uh, first book that propelled her to immense publishing success, advocates this idea that's behind new thought, um, the power of positive thinking. And it seemed completely at odds with Rupert Spira's idea that identification with thoughts and feelings is precisely what deludes us and keeps us trapped when we must realise there's a deeper ground of being that our identity springs from. But it turns out that whilst the secret certainly did advocate the law of attraction, the greatest secret advocates a version of non-dualism. Rhonda Byrne has really changed her mind. Now, she doesn't quite say this in The Greatest Secret. She does talk about a long journey she's been on. And in fact, The Greatest Secret, to my mind, is somewhat muddied because she tries, at least in some moments, to bring the two ideas together, when really they're at quite profound odds. And in fact, the secret behind The Greatest Secret, that of Advaita Vedanta, would say that the law of attraction is precisely the kind of error that keeps you stuck in suffering. However, trying to tease the differences apart can in fact be beneficial because these things are difficult to write and to talk about. And it's often in the moments of struggle that an illumination comes through. So let me try and do that and see where we get to. So the secret, Wanda Burns' original book, is this idea caught actually in a thousand sayings, you know, such as like with like together strike or, you know, conversely, be careful what you pray for. And it's the idea that by the power of thought, you draw what you want. You make it manifest in your life because, as she puts in the secret, everything in the universe has a kind of magnetic resonance or frequency. And so by tuning yourself to that, you draw it towards yourself. Now, I've always been deeply sceptical of this approach, although I also recognise that it has resonance in more sophisticated forms. So, for example, whilst psychologists would call the law of attraction a form of cognitive bias, um, thinking that things have accrued to you because you've been paying attention to them, rather than them accruing to them to you because you've been paying them attention. It's also true that things like cognitive behavioural therapy, maybe quite a lot of therapeutic mindfulness, do similar things, recognising the power of thought, although adding the element of trying to see how negative thoughts can overly shape your life, or conversely, paying attention to negative thoughts in order to try to understand them, to spot the triggers, to see how they originate, and so becoming less identified with them. And therein lies the therapeutic benefit. And Rhonda Byrne has some of that, as well as just the straightforward um, think, attract, manifest, possess in your life, the cruder form of the law of attraction. But it's a progressive path. Um, the more you do it, the more benefits you get. Whereas 
the greatest secret um, in common with what Rupert Spira teaches is not a progressive path, it's a direct path. And it's this that begins to tease out the differences. Um, Advaita Vedanta in more theistic contexts, perhaps called union with God. Um, in the Sufi world, it would be called seeing with the divine face, the only face that sees. Um, St. Augustine talked about realising that God was closer to him than he was to himself. Dante, uh, my favourite visionary, alongside William Blake, um, realised it when he felt himself spinning like a perfect wheel with the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And this perception is realised. It may take a lot of effort or struggle, um, a long journey to the moment of realisation, but it, it, it suddenly flips, it suddenly jolts. Um, it's why Blake talked about eternity's sunrise. He reckons that there could be moments when you see the glorious orb of the sun rising over the horizon and in an instant, with a jolt, realise that it shines with the same brilliant light that your consciousness shines. And so you, as it were, leap out of yourself, but also simultaneously feel drawn within yourself to the self that feels present throughout the world. That is a moment of realisation that the Advanta Vedanta teaching would advocate um, and that is there within Burns' new book, The Greatest Secret. Um, I like to think of it as thinking about how your life and God's life is one life. And for example, how we can only say I am because in some way that assertion reflects the divine I am. You know, conversely, I think it's why atheistic philosophies, like, for example, some forms of Western Buddhism uh, or Humean informed scepticism, struggle to um, recognise um, the identity of oneself, struggle to be able to say I am, because all they see are the transient thoughts, the moving, shifting patterns of life, and they don't see the ground of being, um, that all these transient phenomena move across you know, like waves moving across a sea. And so they conclude that all there are are the transient thoughts, not the sense of identity that is only grounded with a recognition directly or implicitly in the divine identity. Our life and God's life is one life. Now, Spira teaches this not that much by talking about God. He does do on occasion. He'll sometimes say that he's a closet Sufi, um, by which I think he means that nothing can take us for, away from the divine. Um, Sufis often say that if you're walking towards God, if you're walking away from God, if you're walking within God, you're always part of the divine life. Um, and instead of talking about God, for the obvious reasons that some people find it a tricky idea, um, which it is, um, he will talk about awareness and fostering awareness for its own sake partly to disidentify with the thoughts that run through the mind, through with the sensations that run through the body. You know, we're quite inclined to think that that is who we are. But when that separation opens up between the I am and the I am sad or the I am happy, the I am in pain, the I am delighting, when that opens up, the pure consciousness, as it's sometimes put, becomes evident. And But then more positively, to realise that 
the sense of awareness shines, it animates life. And then so it brings about a kind of quiet peace or a sense of compassion, a kind of steadiness to life that can gradually be then aligned with and so lived more from, more deeply known, more subtly embraced. Um, spirals sometimes talk about this taking several stages. Perhaps there's, first of all, the recognition that your eyeness is the most constant thing about you. Then there's the sense that it shines, it has a kind of luminosity, it brings life into life, in fact. Um, you know, we're not like light meters, um, uh, as a light meter in a physics lab might be. We see with our eyes, we see life in the round, fully brilliant before us. Um, but then also there's the third recognition that, um, you know, that my life and the life of those around me, in other creatures too, even in other things, is part of this one life. So, for example, to borrow Martin Buber's, Buber's phrase, there's not I, the, I, it. There's not actually even I, thou, in terms of our relationship with other things. There is just purely I, resting in the one presence, in the one self, which ultimately is the shared awareness, the divine awareness that sustains all, th all things. Now, this truth can clearly be very dramatically misunderstood not least in ego inflation, and I think lies behind a lot of the tyrannical, abusive patterns that you see emerging in groups from individuals that ostensibly seem to be shaped by spiritual intuitions. And in the wisdom traditions, the way that this is remedied is by also stressing the centrality of self-sacrifice. It's the idea that if you can say, I am, that rests in the divine I am, uh, which contains you, holds you, runs through you, but is also not your own to possess. It's not your own to try and cling onto or control or use to manipulate others. And in fact, that will take you away from the experience because it's about, in self-sacrifice, being held in this flow of life by receiving from that flow, but by constantly offering it back in a kind of inner movement of gratitude, of releasing, of allowing, um, much as thoughts, sensations, feelings and so on are allowed, um, but aren't held onto. Um, and that is where the freedom lies. Um, so similarly, self-sacrifice is advocated as a practice because it keeps you within the freedom of knowing of your life and God's life being one life, of knowing that your love spins with the sun and the other stars, as Dante puts it. Now, when you apply that to The Secret, Rhonda Byrne's first book, you realise that it's just not there. Um, in fact, she advocates a three-step methodology, um, which is ultimately possessive in its direction. So, for example, she advocates imagining what you want, feeling you have what you want, and then having what you want. Um, there's a definite sense that not just life will improve for you internally, but it will improve for you materially as well, if you follow this method in The Secret. But in The Greatest Secret, she advocates a very different method, I think probably borrowed actually from Rupert Spira, um, which is asking yourself, am I aware Noticing the quality of that awareness, in particular how it differs from what you're aware of, and then staying with that quality of awareness and realising that is the steady truth and nature 
of yourself. So it's not about attracting, because awareness can't be attracted, it can't be amplified, it can only be recognised or recollected, um, remembered moment by moment in this process of self-sacrifice, receiving and letting go. And it can't be possessed or controlled either. Um, it's already the possession you fully have called the gift of life. Um, so if you mix these two things up, attracting and not attracting, possessing and not possessing, um, you inevitably introduce error and confusion, ignorance into the teaching. And I think that is what's happening in The Greatest Secret, even whilst it advocates a lot of the truer teaching of Advaita Vedanta. Um, every so often, Rhonda Byrne will reference her earlier book, The Secret, and as if the two um, are part and parcel of the same teaching, when actually I think they're um, even diametrically opposed. Now, she might have said this, um, she might not quite realise it, um, you know, words like feeling, like thought, like consciousness, um, like delight, um, what you have and what you don't have. These are subtle things um, seen clearly for most of us, perhaps only in moments. But it's worth trying to hold them apart. And in a way, reading the two books together can help you do that. It helped me do that. Because, for example, on one page, she'll say that thoughts manifest things in your life. But then even a couple of pages later, she'll write that nothing can be added to your life. Um, she'll say in one page that thoughts create your life. Um, but then on another page, she'll say that thoughts actually limit your life because they take you away from this deeper awareness. Um, she'll talk about programming your mind on one page with positive thoughts. And then on another page, inquiring into the nature of your mind to see that there's nothing to change, in fact, because it's already eternally present. Um, it leads to further confusion when she talks about healing, because, for example, she can say in one page, uh, present a sort of case study of someone who was healed by positive thought. But then in another page, say that the secret is not to want to feel better, but to be able to accept what is happening to you, for good or ill, actually, because that helps you to rest in the awareness that's unaffected by even ill health, even by pain and suffering. It's not who you truly are, it's part of this flow or passing of thought. And so this enables the capacity not to try and split off from the difficulty, but to allow the difficulty, resting in the deeper sense of yourself. So in a way, Rhonda Byrne, in The Greatest Secret, oscillates between sort of, I think, three kind of positions. Um, and it's worth, when you read the book, if you read the book, trying to spot which position she's in, I think. Um, one is a fairly crude form of the law of attraction. You know, that is still there. Um, imagine, manifest, draw to yourself, and so on. This quite possessive feel. Um, a second is bringing together lots of insights from psychology, from depth psychology, about the benefit of being able to disidentify with feelings, being able to inquire into feelings, um, and so understand how they're triggered within you, their origins, um, realising that the past is as much present in the mind as the eternal present is, um, and so we can relive trauma time and time again until we are either helped or are able to approach it carefully and so dissolve 
things that have deeply disturbed us before in life. Um, these three different approaches to life are at times present within the greatest secret, almost within a page or two of each other. But that said, um, the greatest secret, I think, is broadly trying to write about Rupert Spira's methods. Um, he'll use a number of metaphors. He'll talk about realising that we're not the trains of our thoughts that were pulling through the station of our life, um, but that we're the station and we should allow the trains to come and go. Um, he'll talk about how we're not the movie playing our life, we're the screen upon which the movie is projected. And again, the idea is to identify with the screen rather than with what's happening moment by moment without separating yourself off from what's happening moment by moment. Um, or he'll talk about how life is like a dream um, and like a dream when we wake up and realise that whilst when we were in the dream it seemed like we were in a complete and whole universe, when we wake up we realise it was just a manifestation, um, it was just a kind of activity of our awareness, limited by being asleep, hence the imagery of waking up, which is often associated with this kind of realisation. Now, Byrne uses all those analogies in her book, in her anthologising, she quotes extensively, quotes Rupert Spira extensively, um, and that then feels for the good. She's trying to present things to a wider audience, which she can certainly reach. But then in the next page, she'll seem to be saying almost exactly the opposite, like hop on the train, live the dream. Um, you know, design your mind, um, and momentarily you feel confused. So I would advise being alert to that struggle, which seems like it's embedded in the pages of Rhonda Byrne's new book, even though The Greatest Secret is onto this very, very different approach to awakening from the law of attraction, which is in her earlier books, particularly The Secret. And by being alert to it yourself, it's almost as if the wrestling leads to the opening through which the realisation of being aware with an awareness that is always already eternally and unchangingly present can become known to you.